All right, in last week's episode, we covered chapters 5, 6, and 7, which showed uh, basically my infidelity in relationships that I had, eventually getting a new girlfriend while I still had an old girlfriend, and leading up to the birth of Austin, which I was not at the hospital for and should have been. So... I know that's a very brief synopsis, but that'll get you a little bit up to speed because this episode is going to start with chapter eight, which will have me taking more of a father role for the first time in my life. So uh, without further ado, enjoy. Chapter eight, love of another kind. The arrival of Austin affected my life in surprising ways. Like so many young people, I was very selfish, and I clearly behaved accordingly. Austin would change that part of me. I was not a quote-unquote kid person, and I had no experience with babies. My sister Michelle had just given birth to my niece, April, a week before Austin arrived. Michelle lived with us, so I was around April, but I had only held her a few times during that week. This had nothing to do with April and everything to do with my lack of soft side. There was no desire in me to hold a baby. Thirty seconds in, and I was ready to give the baby right back to their parents. The day after Austin was born, I visited him and Cheryl at the hospital. When I arrived, Austin was already in the room. I looked at him for a bit, and Cheryl asked if I wanted to hold him. Initially, I was reluctant, but once he was safely in my arms and I stared into his eyes, my heart filled in a way that I had never felt before. This was a feeling that I cannot describe with words. This confused me because I'd held several babies before and never felt like this. Even though I did not have a physical part in creating this baby, I felt an instant connection. I did not want to put him down. In that moment, my mind cleared and I knew exactly what I must do. I needed to part ways with Joyce and be a real role model to this boy. Sadly, though, I still did not realize what a piece of shit I was for missing his birth. That lesson would come much later in life. Later that week, I officially broke up with Joyce for good. My attention was devoted completely to Cheryl and Austin. I could not get enough of that baby boy and would hold him as often as I could. Some of my best memories are of him falling asleep in my arms and then just lying there on the sofa with him on my chest. There was a span of about a week when he had colic which had him crying virtually non-stop. I was the only person who could soothe him enough for him to stop crying. This indicated to me that his feelings toward me were the same as mine for him. This made my heart happy. I constantly smiled while looking into those big, beautiful eyes and playing with his head full of curly hair. As Austin started learning to walk and talk, my excitement level grew and I found myself searching for family activities rather than couple activities. Trips to the zoo and to the park were now part of my regular routine. I found myself putting someone else's happiness ahead of my own for the very first time in my life. I was in love with Cheryl, but I was also in love with Austin. This was a package deal sent straight from heaven. The love that I had for Austin was a love that I had never experienced in my life. To be clear, I still did not have an interest in other kids. But for Austin, I would have given my life. 
When I took the supervisor's job at Enroll, I moved to first shift. After I would get off, I would head over to Cheryl's house, and when I would open the door, Austin would be at the top of the stairway at the baby gate. He would smile and stomp his feet, just as excited to see me as I was to see him. That was the highlight of every day for me. My whole mindset of life changed when that child came into this world. He may not have been biologically mine, but he was and always will be my son. Chapter 9 Married and Children By 1991, my life felt as though I were living within a fairy tale. Cheryl was my soulmate, and I experienced a deep love with her that I had never had previously. My deepest desire was to spend every moment with her and Austin. I had a great job in management with Enroll Shirt Company, and upper management loved me. My schedule had me finally on day shift, and my annual salary was $25,000 a year. That was really good money at the time. We had just bought our first house and a brand new car, a 1992 Nissan Sentra. I had some of the best friends in the world, Rondell, Kevin, and John. I had a great balance of home, work, and leisure. What more could I possibly ask for? How about marrying my soulmate? That would put the fairy tale ending on my story. Our wedding day was set for July 25, 1992. We found out shortly after setting the date that we were going to have an unexpected guest at the wedding, and she was also going to have a front row seat. Cheryl was pregnant with our daughter, Amber. Just when I thought things could not get any better, they did in an instant. We'd been discussing having another child, but we had decided to wait until Austin was a little bit older. He had reached that age where he no longer needed a babysitter when we went out. There were plenty of things that we could now do with him that you couldn't really do as easily with a baby in tow, and babysitters were not readily available to us. Mine and Cheryl's parents loved their grandchildren, but they were not interested in having the kids come over and stay the day or the night. In the early evening of February 18, 1993, Cheryl started to experience contractions. We called the OBGYN, who was positive that Cheryl could not be in labor. He instructed her to take a shower and go to bed. But Cheryl was positive that she was in labor. This was not her first rodeo, after all. So we called my parents, who rushed over, and we immediately went to the hospital. The OBGYN was called, but he did not make it to the hospital in time for the delivery. Amber Page Polly was delivered into this world by one of his nurses. We enjoyed this evening so much, we immediately did it again. Shortly after Amber's birth, we became pregnant once more. April 8, 1994 would prove to be a very memorable day. Our third child, Alex Cameron Polly, was born. This was obviously the main event for us that day. The birth was less eventful than Amber's birth, but it was also a quick birth, luckily for Cheryl. What was unexpected was some heartbreaking news that the world would soon receive. I was taking my mother home from the hospital and sitting at a red light, when the announcer on the radio reported that Kurt Cobain, the lead singer for Nirvana, had been found dead from a self-inflicted gunshot wound in his Seattle area home. As happy as I was about the birth of our son, I was just as devastated by this tragedy. I considered Kurt to be the John Lennon of that generation. Six years later, Cheryl and I had a great marriage with three wonderful kids. I felt as though I was a great provider, husband, and a father. Partying with friends was not something I would do, and most of my free time was spent doing family stuff. I lived for my family. So I was in total shock when Cheryl came to me and told me that she wanted a divorce. 
Having a wife ask for a divorce was bad enough, but she was extremely cold in her actions. Her relationship had seemed fine the day before, and now she wanted a divorce that would not consider marriage counseling and refused to let me even touch her. To me, she was being a cold-hearted bitch. Here's the problem. I was so blind and naive that I believed everything that I just wrote about my marriage and my life. I was living in a fantasy world, and over the years, I had ruined everything that I held sacred. Surveying my marriage, I realized that I had not given Cheryl the respect that she deserved, and now I was losing my marriage and my family. When it came to my opinion of my abilities of being a great husband, father, and provider, I had completely brainwashed myself. I did not recognize that my life had been all about me and my selfish needs. My words said that my family came first. Unfortunately, my actions did not line up with those words. Not recognizing at the time my shortcomings strikes me as despicable. This was a short chapter lacking in details, and it was meant to be that way. This chapter symbolizes my lack of attention to the finer details during this time of my life. In the next chapter, I will reveal how Cheryl and I went from a happy marriage to a divorce. One revelation will be that Cheryl was not a cold-hearted bitch. She was quite the opposite. A person can only be pushed so far before that person just shuts down. Chapter 10, Reality vs. Delusion The journey through this part of my life is dark. Shame and embarrassment are two words that come to mind to describe how this area of my life makes me feel. There are people who may judge me and even hate me for my past actions. I imagine that many will lose their respect for me. I would not blame them. This sounds bleak, but there is a method to the madness. Despite this dark time and my despicable behavior, my life is quite different now. And Cheryl and her husband Mickey are two of our closest friends today. Their son Aiden is like a grandson to us. My purpose is to reveal that a person can change the direction of life in a positive way. There is hope. My goal is to give you that hope. Part of the solution is to direct your motivations to the good in your life. I want to be a role model for my children. I want to be a good human being. That was enough to create the desire within me to take the steps needed to accomplish my goals. For the past 20 years, I've worked at this, and although there is still some work to be done, I have come a long way. Unfortunately, I had to lose everything, hit rock bottom, and attempt suicide to get to this point. Perhaps reading my experience will help people to change their path in life without having to go through this pain and anguish. I have made amends with Cheryl for the things that I am about to share with you, but I will never, ever be able to truly express how sorry that I am or apologize enough to her for my transgressions. She proved to be a bigger and better person than I had been. I will always be grateful for her forgiveness. The last chapter had few details, and I want to fill in those gaps without being redundant. The details are important in revealing how I turned a great marriage into a dumpster fire. If any parts seem glossed over, it's only because I want to maintain focus and not get the reader lost in the details. So let's go back to 1992, which was shortly after our wedding, and life was good. We had a new home, new car, and a baby on the way. But the rumor mill at Enroe Shirt Company was really kicking up at this point, 
because Enroll had been sold to a company in China. Word was that the plant was going to be shut down and production moved to China, and I was worried that the rumors might be true. Being in management, of course I knew a lot of the insider information. Upper management felt that we would be shut down in three to six months. As you can imagine, this was an incredibly stressful time in my life. Cheryl and I had several current financial responsibilities and plenty more on the way. We were already starting to struggle because we took on more than we should have with buying a new house and a new car at the same time. We had both been living at home with our respective parents when we bought the house and moved in together just six months before our wedding took place. A house payment, utility bills, and a new car payment was more than we were prepared for, and I needed to find a way to improve our situation. The most logical step was to find a new job. I asked my plant manager, Mr. King, to write me a letter of recommendation, and then I was out job hunting. I was relieved that Mr. King understood my situation. At that time, there was no internet or zip recruiter to help with finding a job. There was only the help wanted section of the newspaper, and I checked it daily. I focused on the management section, and one day, an ad jumped out at me. This was the answer to our problems. Branch manager wanted $30,000 a year to start. I kept reading. The position paid a sales-based commission with a weekly guarantee while in training. Once you were a branch manager, once you were a branch manager, you had the option of taking a $30,000 yearly guarantee or take a commission only and make unlimited income with the average branch manager making over $70,000 a year. Even at the minimum, I would be making $5,000 more than I was making now. I picked up the phone and set up an interview. That evening, Cheryl and I discussed the job and the possibilities that it would offer us. We were excited with the prospect that this could solve our money issues. Another step that we had taken was to give up our house and move into an apartment, which was cheaper and the utilities cost less. The savings from the apartment and less utilities combined with extra money from the new job was extremely promising. But I still had to actually get the job. I had not even been to the interview yet. This was the following day at 10 a.m., so we would know soon enough. I was told to bring paper, pen, and a great attitude to the interview. The following day, I took an early lunch at work so I could attend the interview. When I arrived at the location, I was surprised to see that I was not the only interviewee. There were about 15 other people and we were all guided to a small conference room. The seats were set up as if there were going to be a lecture. That was because there actually was going to be a lecture, complete with a short video presentation. This type of job interview was new to me, but then again, I had never had a job interview other than internal interviews at the companies where I had already worked. A man entered the conference room and introduced us to the company, which was called Centura Creations. This was a perfume company. According to this man, they had the formulas to all the top perfumes and colognes in the world and they recreated them, only they added more oil. So these scents would actually last longer than the originals. These fragrances were sold in plain packaging for a fraction of the cost of the actual name brand. Our job in training was to go door-to-door to residences and businesses selling this product. In approximately six weeks, we would get our own branch. We learned about the company itself and how easy it was to sell the product. More importantly, we learned how much we could make when we had our own branch. 
After the presentation, there was a quick break, and then we were going to meet individually with the three instructors that were waiting. During that intermission, about half of the people that had been at the presentation left. Honestly, I was a little confused as to why they left. Maybe they just did not like the idea of sales. I had personally never done sales, but I figured if it could make a better life for myself and my family in six short weeks, it was worth giving it a shot. After the intermission, instructors started calling us one by one. Finally, it was my turn. I interviewed with a gentleman named Darwin, and the interview was relatively quick. Darwin asked me what I wanted out of life that my previous work experience had not given me. We had a small discussion about that, but it seemed that Darwin was not so much interested in what I wanted than in what drove me. What extremes would I be willing to go to in order to get what I wanted? Darwin got me motivated by telling me about trips to exotic places that the company would take their managers every year. He explained that the branches were designed to be fun. They had morning motivational meetings to get everybody pumped up to start the day and then again at the end of the day before everybody went home. The company called these meetings JUICE meetings. JUICE was an acronym for Join Us in Creating Enthusiasm. I was told that employees ran around all day shouting juice to each other just to keep up morale. At the end of the interview, I was told that they only had a few spots available and they would call me later tonight if I'd been chosen for a second interview. I tried to inquire a little more about the paid training and how the guarantee worked for branch managers and Darwin told me that if I was chosen for a second interview, we would discuss all of that then. This whole interview process should have been a huge red flag but I was wild-eyed and hopeful, so I took the whole affair hook, line, and sinker. Here was where I made my next major mistake in my marriage. I discussed the interview with Cheryl when I got home from work. She was immediately skeptical. To her, something just didn't seem right about the whole situation. She asked me questions, and I did not know the answers. These were the same questions that I had asked Darwin and he had told me that I would find out at the second interview. I got a call around 7 p.m. from Darwin. He excitedly told me that they absolutely loved my interaction throughout the presentation and that my interview only confirmed that I was the right person for the job. The job was mine if I wanted it. No second interview needed. I was on cloud nine, but I still had those questions, so I asked very specifically, The training is six weeks long, and then I get my branch, correct? Darwin responded, For most people, six weeks of training was all that was needed, but there were some variables. Then I asked, This is paid training, correct? You had said $300 a week while in training. His response to that was, Yes, the average person in training makes approximately $300 a week while in training. I asked one last question. When I get my own branch, I can do the guarantee $30,000 and not have to take the commission option. Correct? The answer I received was, that was 100% true. When I hung up the phone, my mind was made up. I was taking that job. Cheryl still obviously had her reservations, but I ignored those. That was a big issue in our marriage. I never seemed to care about her concerns. I did not treat our marriage as if it was a partnership 
when it came to major decisions. A part of me must have thought that she was incapable of making a decision of this importance. The next day, I turned in my two weeks' notice to Enro, completely against Cheryl's wishes. Even if my decision on the job had not been a mistake, the way I handled the decision with Cheryl was still completely disrespectful and wrong. I made several horrible mistakes when it came to this new career move. Not making a decision with my partner and my wife was only the first. When I started the job, I realized that the position was grossly misrepresented. There were 11 of us trainees on that first day, so clearly I was not as special as Darwin had told me that I was. Oh, and that six weeks of training was the company's way of saying that we were their sales force. Our job was to go out and sell bottles of perfume and cologne door to door. We sold these bottles for $25 each, and at the end of the day, we had to turn in $16 per bottle, and we kept the rest. And remember that $300 per week while in training? Well, it turned out that this was not guaranteed. And that was a number that they threw out there that represented the average number of sales that most salesmen would make in a week. To reach that, I would have to sell about 30 bottles of perfume a week or 6 bottles a day. That was virtually impossible to accomplish. This guaranteed paid job was really a commission-only job. So if I made no sales, I made no money to feed my family. Luckily, Cheryl had just started to work at a local gas station, and we had lowered our expenses. But man, what the hell was I thinking? What I should have done was told the company, fuck this, I'm out of here. That was the second mistake concerning this job. When I told Cheryl what the job entailed, she begged me to find another job. I told her no. I said no because I had a lot of faith in my abilities when it came to work. And telling me that I cannot do something only drives me more. When I put my mind to doing something, I can accomplish almost anything. Now most of the time, these qualities were to my advantage. This would be one of those times when I accomplished a goal that I was told that I would not. But the cost of that accomplishment would be a detriment to my family. Six weeks of training turned into several months of training. We were struggling financially. We were behind on our rent and facing an eviction, and our baby Amber was due at any time. We had just gotten our tax return, and we decided to use that money to get a new apartment. Cheryl was pleading with me daily to get another job. She was wasting her breath. I thought, what did she know? I was so close to getting my branch manager job that I could taste it. By this time, everyone that I knew had told me what a con job this was that I was getting screwed and would never get my own branch. This included my parents and my best friends. I was literally blinded by what I was being told by this company. In my mind, I would prove them all wrong and I would have a great career and it would all be worth the issues that we were currently suffering through. I'd met several branch managers at this point. Most were making seventy dollars to $100,000 a year. That was the prize that my eyes were focused on. This was no longer about a $30,000 a year job. I had to let it get the best of me. Amber was born and we moved again into another apartment. Cheryl and I were constantly fighting. These fights were primarily over finances and the fact that I was never home. It took six months, but I did eventually get my own branch, which was an accomplishment of sorts. The branch that I was training at had been open for two years. 
Hundreds of employees had come through there. I was the only one to make it to branch manager, and I lost everything that I had in the process. This included doing irreparable damage to my marriage. I would not realize that, though, for years. This was for a job that was not guaranteed to pay 30000 per year and that there was no support from the parent company. When I got my branch in July of 1993, I was driven from Louisville, Kentucky to Chicago with no money in my pocket by one of the company's representatives to talk to the regional manager. The company had just paid for the lease to my office in Louisville and had the deposits placed for utilities. I was excited. I had finally made it. Or so I thought. The meeting was a sucker punch I did not see coming. The regional manager informed me that they were closing the location that I was hired out of and moving the branch manager back to Chicago. Without that location open, they could not open mine. There would be no branch for me. I had worked so hard, placed all my hopes in obtaining a branch, and traveled all this way to be told that it was over. My spirit cracked and I literally went ballistic before completely breaking down. I was in shock and devastated on so many levels. Words could not define the range of emotions that I experienced. I had completely let my family down. The regional manager, Jason, felt bad, bad enough that he bought me a Greyhound bus ticket back to Louisville. The bus left at 11 p.m. and was due to arrive in Louisville at 6 a.m. I did not have a penny on me and had no way to even call anyone to let them know that I was coming home. I got off the bus in downtown Louisville dressed in my business clothes and shoes. My only option was to get off that bus, walk to the gas station where Cheryl worked, get the car, and drive home so I could get some much-needed sleep. By this time, the sun was scorching downtown at over 90 degrees. The only way I knew to get to Cheryl's work was by the freeway. I walked from downtown Louisville Greyhound bus station to the I-65 Fern Valley Road off-ramp. This was a five-mile walk on the freeway in long sleeves and dress shoes in the middle of July. I finally arrived at the gas station only to be told that Cheryl's car was not there because it was home with a flat tire. I had to call a friend to come pick me up and take me home. This day was the lowest point in my entire life. In six months, against my wife's wishes, I quit a stable job, spent six months completely brainwashed and putting us in a poorhouse, moved twice, and was now unemployed with two young mouths to feed, including a newborn. I was officially a loser. Even though I felt like a loser, I sure as hell was not a quitter, and I will always be a fighter. As horrible as this experience had been, It did teach me how to have a positive attitude, and it taught me how to sell. Those two attributes would play a major part in the rest of my life. My next job was a car salesman, and I did a great job. My second month, I outsold the other ten salesmen on the lot and was named Salesman of the Month. Most of the other salesmen of the lot had been lifelong salesmen, so I was very proud of this accomplishment. I made good money selling cars. The downside were the working hours. My schedule was 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. six days a week. This created a new set of problems because Cheryl, who was now no longer working, had two young children to care for and a third baby now on the way. 
This meant she was primarily on her own, doing all the cooking and the cleaning, as well as taking care of the children. We only had one car, so she had to drive me back and forth to work. That meant loading the kids in and out of the car early in the morning and late in the evening. I look back now and I see how tough this had to be on her. It had to be overwhelming most days. Did I realize that way back then? Nope. Remember, it was all about me back then. I was the one that was working 70 hours a week. I was the one making the money. I was also the one constantly criticizing her. The critiques were not personal about her looks or how she dressed, but more about what she had made for dinner or if the house wasn't kept to my liking. I never deeply appreciated what she did for our family. My romantic side would come out with the weekly gifts of flowers or would host a candlelight dinner, but what she truly needed, I ignored. As Cheryl got further along in the pregnancy, I stopped into a rent-to-own store named All Rentco to rent a pager so if she went into labor, she could at least contact me. All Rentco was a rent-to-own store. They rented furniture, appliances, and electronics to those who did not have a good credit score. Before there were cell phones, pagers were the best way to communicate. I did not want to buy one, so renting one was the best option. By this time, I had left the car business and was now working as a night shift security guard. This compromise not only allowed me to be home more, but it also gave me the ability to take the car to and from work, saving Cheryl some time and effort. Being home more meant that I could help with our children as well. The main issue with this job was that it was third shift and my body was not acclimated, so I found it difficult to stay awake. I tried for a month, but my body would just not adjust. After Alex was born, I returned the pager to the rental location. I struck up a conversation with the manager, Darren. By the time that we were done talking, he had offered me a job. Cheryl and I discussed this new opportunity, and we agreed that I should take the position. I had no way of knowing that I was not only taking a job, I was making a career choice. This career would be there for me any time that I would need it in the future. And while that was great and the job paid well, the hours and the working conditions were crazy. This would lead to more stress and anger issues, and these would eventually lead to the end of my marriage. This new job was a natural fit for me. The problem was that we were back to our old routine. I was never home. Cheryl was right back to holding down the fort. But now we had a third child. My new job had me doing collections by telephone and in person when people did not make their payments. Needless to say, people were not appreciative when I contacted them. Several times a day, I was either threatened or cursed out. My skin was thick, so I figured I could handle this, but I ended up taking the stress home with me. I would bitch and complain constantly, and while Cheryl got the brunt of it, some spilled over to the children as well. Over the next few years, this got progressively worse. I became a yeller and a screamer. This came so natural to me that I didn't even realize that I was doing it. I eventually worked my way to manager and worked there for five years. My salary increased, but unfortunately, so did my stress and anger issues. Alrenko eventually was sold to a bigger company. The new company sent in an auditor to all the stores to do complete audits. On the day of this audit, I had taken a money order from a customer that was more than her payment and given her change back. This was acceptable under our old company, but not with the new company. 
so they gave me a final written warning for the incident. Here comes my next mistake. I quit my job on the spot and walked out. I immediately went to a competing rent-to-own store and filled out an application and did an on-the-spot interview. I did the same at a collections company for a buy-here-pay-here used car lot. Both hired me on the spot. Cheryl and I once again sat down and decided which position to take, and that would be the collections position at the used car lot. I enjoyed this job, but the company was not reputable, and they took advantage of several customers. This company did the financing for the car lot next door. When buying a used car, it was sold as is with no warranty. After buying the car, the customers would then come over to our side to do the paperwork. We would explain the lack of warranty to them as part of the paperwork. On several of these loans, the company would break down the down payment into two or three payments. There were many times that the car's motor or transmission went completely out before the buyer even got their full down payment paid. This is primarily because the car lot would buy junk cars and did virtually no inspection on them before cleaning them and selling them at three times the book value. When the purchaser had a major mechanical problem, they went to the car lot to complain and they were immediately sent to us. I would have to look these people in the face, often a young family, and tell them, that there was absolutely nothing that could be done, and that they were still responsible for the payments whether the car was running or not. I left that job after only 18 months because my conscience would not allow me to do that anymore. But before I quit, I did have another job lined up. One of my fellow collectors at the car lot had moved on to a mortgage company. She enticed me to come take a look, and she even set up an interview for me. Cheryl completely agreed with me making this move. Clearly, I had been job hopping for several years. I was looking for something that was a comfortable fit like my job at Enro. Most of these moves were made for the purpose of making a better life for my family, and I felt that the mortgage business would finally be the fit that I sought. This was the first job that I had in a while with great hours and weekends off. There was a set salary and commissions. I was particularly good at this position and I was bringing home more bacon than I had in previous employment. The stress level should have been less, but it wasn't. My regular routine was ingrained, so I was still bitching and complaining when I got home. Only now, it had become worse. I had become proficient in using my words to be hurtful. My complaints were always combined with an insult now. I started to really degrade Cheryl by calling her names that no female should ever be called especially your wife and someone you love. My rage blinded me from how much I did love her. She became my enemy without doing anything to cause that to happen. She must have felt like that she couldn't do anything right with my constant criticism. I treated her like she was sitting on her ass all day long, and I made her feel like shit daily. I'm sure that I completely destroyed her self-esteem during this time with my constant verbal abuse. Cheryl eventually started fighting back, and she would sling insulting comments in response to some of mine. These were deserved, but in my mind, she was wrong. I would think, how dare she? She had her nerve. I worked my ass off while she sits on her ass all day long, not cleaning the house and cooking half-assed dinners, if she even bothers to cook at all. In reality, she worked hard every day. Cheryl found a job working outside of our home at a warehouse. Now, this was a good thing for her, but not so much for me. 
she started making friends. Friends in whom that she could confide. Friends that would eventually tell her what a piece of shit she had for a husband. You know, the truth. This job gave her the ability to evaluate her life. She was nearly 30 years old with three kids and a verbally abusive husband. A husband that she did not love anymore. I noticed the changes in her. She was becoming more independent. She was a beautiful woman and I had verbally beaten her down to a shell of herself. Her self-confidence was returning and that gave her the ability to finally voice her deepest desire. I want a divorce. I was shocked. Should I have been? Hell no. But I had been oblivious to the pain that I had caused her all of those years. I had believed that I was a good husband and a father. What the hell was wrong with me that I did not recognize her pain or that of my children? When Cheryl asked me for a divorce, she stood strong and rigid. I tried to put my arms around her and she stood straight up and down like a guard outside of Buckingham Palace. No emotion. She refused to hug me back. I asked her why she wanted a divorce and she gave me no response. I asked about the possibility of going to counseling. The answer was quick. No, I've made up my mind. My earlier description for this moment was that Cheryl had acted like a cold-hearted bitch. And she did. But clearly, it had taken her so long to work up the courage to say the words that she felt that she needed this defense mechanism to keep her strong. Cheryl was not a very emotional person. She was not one to discuss her feelings. Perhaps if she had been, I would have known much earlier how she felt, and then maybe I could have changed. To be honest, though, I knew me well, and I would have dismissed whatever she said and told her that she was blowing things out of proportion. I probably would have thrown in an insult referring to her lack of intelligence. Cheryl asked me for a divorce, but she never actually told me why she wanted the divorce. I was so oblivious to her amount of hurt that I could not figure this out on my own. There were numerous apologies, and when those did not work, I tried to figure out what else could be the root of the problem. Could this be some kind of a hormonal imbalance with her? I absolutely could not take responsibility for my own actions. Cheryl wanted me to move out of the house immediately. This hit me like a ton of bricks. Imagine how blindsided I felt since I was out of touch. The day before, I was a happily married man with a wonderful family life, and at this moment, my wife was asking for a divorce. I was losing my soulmate, and she was demanding that I move out of the house and away from my children. What the fuck just happened? As far as I was concerned, I was the victim. Where was I going to stay? I did not want to go back to my parents' house. They didn't have the room for me anyway. My best friend, Rondell Tuttle, let me crash for him for a couple of weeks, at least enough time to gather my thoughts. I did manage to convince Cheryl to give counseling a chance during this period. We agreed to give it a year and see how we felt about our relationship at that point. I moved back into the house but slept on the sofa. She eventually said that I could sleep back into the bed, but this was more of a courtesy. Through counseling and deep conversations with Cheryl, I began to digest all the ways in which I had damaged our relationship. I remember asking her why she never showed any emotion over our current situation. The answer I got might have been the hardest thing that I had ever heard. She said, 
I fell out of love with you over two years ago, and I've cried myself to sleep almost every night since then. Wow. Just wow. That's when it sunk in that this was all my fault. Over our trial year, I tried to do my best to be a better husband and a father. I learned to control my temper, I became respectful, and I tried to take better care of myself. Over the years, I had gained about 30 pounds and I quit wearing my contacts. I was never George Clooney, but I did look much better when Cheryl and I had first met. My commitment drove me to lose much of the extra weight and I felt better. We started having date nights to try to rekindle that flame. Cheryl had made it clear that when I moved back in, that there would be no sexual part of our relationship. She did not want to have sex with someone whom she did not love. That was a hard pill to swallow. Imagine hearing that from the mother of your children, the woman you've lived with for 12 years. But I was willing to do anything it took to win my family back. The word that comes to mind when thinking of that year is awkward. Daily, I felt as though I was walking on eggshells and trying too hard. Our relationship hung on everything I said or did. This was like an audition for Jerry. This is your life. Actually, this was the Bachelorette before the TV show ever premiered and I was the only contestant. We spent the year being civil. We even had some fun. I was not perfect, but I made some huge strides. I legitimately felt like things were getting back to normal. I practically forgot that Cheryl had asked for a divorce. We took a trip to Fairfield Glades, a resort and a golf course in Tennessee for Valentine's Day of 2001. This was a beautiful place, freezing, but beautiful. The stay was wonderful. We took long walks along the stream, played cards, ate lots of ice cream, and for the first time in almost a year, we were intimate. I was so incredibly nervous that I could not quit shaking. In my mind, this had to be the best experience that she had ever had. I can remember apologizing during the act. This felt like life or death to me. Unfortunately, I read too much into the fact that the intimacy was brought back into the relationship. Cheryl had told me that she was not comfortable being intimate with someone whom she did not love. Did this mean what I thought it meant? Were the feelings back? I would get my answer the following month. On March 2, 2001, almost a year to the day that we agreed to give our marriage a chance, Cheryl told me that she still wanted a divorce. Hearing that made me wonder if the past year had just been out of sympathy. Had she just done this out of guilt rather than hope that she would change her mind? She again asked me to move out of the house, but she gave me time. The plan was for me to move out when the school year ended in May. We agreed to do this because it worked best for Cheryl's schedule and it gave me time to find a place to live. She had to leave for work much earlier than I did, therefore I was the only one who could get the children off to school. There was no shock this time with her request, but I was far more devastated. I felt as though I'd done everything in my power over the last year to earn her love back. Unfortunately, love does not work that way. I was extremely bitter with her decision. This whole chapter has been about my delusions and the reality of what happened. I had made changes, major changes. I'd become a better husband and a father. The yelling and anger had stopped. Some of the changes were subtle, especially with my children. In the past, 
when I participated in activities with my children, it was not because I wanted to do the things that they enjoyed, but rather what I enjoyed. For example, when I took them to the movies, I would choose a movie that I wanted to see. I was not interested in Disney movies, so I would let Cheryl take them to see those. During this trial year, I took the kids to see The Hunchback of Notre Dame. Clearly, this does not seem to be a huge step. But for me, it was. This was me putting their wants before my own. I then took them to see Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. Trust me, I had no desire to see either of those movies. I will admit that neither movie was as bad as I would have thought, and I enjoyed both of them. It felt good doing something for someone else for once. I had learned a lot, and I had become comfortable in my relationship with my children and my wife. This was only a facade, though, because my world was about to crumble around me, and I was about to hit rock bottom. <laughs>